The content of this podcast should not be considered financial or investment advice. All interviews and discussions are opinions only, and the podcast has been created without taking into consideration the listener's objectives, financial situation, or needs. Listeners should consider obtaining independent advice before making any financial decisions. So welcome to this edition of the Stockhead Wildcatter. My name is Peter Strachan and today we are delighted to have Scott McMillan in the chair talking to us about Invictus Petroleum. Welcome to the podcast, Scott. Thank you, Peter, and nice to be here. So Invictus is an interesting company. They've got their hands on some very, very exciting exploration projects in the northern part of uh, Zimbabwe in an area that I know well because I worked in Zambia for a couple of years on the uh, over the Kabora Bassa uh, Rift Valley where there's a, a massive uh, hydroelectric dam at the moment. And uh, the, so the company has uh, has picked this ground up and has been working diligently on putting together all the science behind it. And so I'd just like to introduce uh, Scott and just ask him to tell me a little bit about himself and how Invictus came uh, to this project. Sure. Thanks, Peter. I'll, uh, I'll start with a little bit about uh, my background, uh, first of all, and then I'll get into to how Invictus um, got their hands on, on this very, very exciting acreage. Uh, so I'm a reservoir engineer by background, um, started my career in, in coal seam gas in Botswana, saw the potential uh, there for, uh, to develop these resources in an energy-starved market um, and uh, came back to Australia. Um, did a master's in petroleum and then joined Woodside Energy um, and was there for, uh, for a large part of my career. I then moved on to, uh, to Armour Energy uh, with their shale project in, uh, in the Northern Territory and, and North Queensland, uh, as well as their Roma shelf assets um, as well. And then joined AWE, uh, where we had the white uh, gas discovery in the Perth Basin, which has been tremendously exciting uh, and just reignited by, uh, by Strzok and, and Warrigo as well. So it's the big reason one. Have since eclipsed, have since eclipsed that discovery, which was fantastic in itself. That's right, and, and uh, it, it it is a, a renaissance for the Perth Basin, and uh, you know one of these players that was completely overlooked for a long, long time, and has been unearthed, uh, you know, through through new technology and also uh, with a bit of luck. And now uh, a couple of companies have, have really picked up uh, the ball and are running with it, which is great to see. Uh, and then um, <clears throat> shortly after the Mitsui buyout of uh, AWE, uh, we managed to get uh, Invictus off the ground with this um, with this very exciting project in the Kaborabasa, uh, but that's been a long time in the making. It's uh, it's nearly 10 years since I came across this project and uh, had a couple of goes at getting it off the ground without uh, much success, but, but very fortunately, uh, sometimes in life, timing works out. And uh, at the end of 2017, just after we were granted the license, uh, there was a political change uh, in Zimbabwe, which um, you know, sort of brought about now uh, the, the, the above ground changes that were necessary to facilitate investment into Zimbabwe. It, it's been, um, it has been an overlooked jurisdiction for 20 years because of the political and, and economic crises uh, that were ongoing there, but that, that changed uh, and, and that was around about the same time as, as exploration was picking up again after a um, you know, pretty poor period from mid-2014. Uh, and so the stars aligned. That's right, Scott. It seems as though the fiscal and operating terms there are pretty favourable with a five-year tax holiday, uh, 15% corporate tax, uh, no capital gains tax, 
offshore banking. So, you know, you're in a pretty good position there uh, from a fiscal point of view. Yeah, that's right. The, 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 the new government has come in and introduced uh, a lot of necessary reform, um, you know, particularly around the indigenization law, which mandated a 51% local government partner, which is, you know, prohibitive for investments, particularly for resource projects where, uh, you know, they require a lot of money, uh, ultimately, and uh, they're long-term investments. And so the, the, the new government had recognised this very early on in their tenure, amended that indigenization law so that there's, there's now 100% foreign ownership allowed. And uh, they've also brought in legislation such as special economic zones, which uh, some of the fiscal benefits uh, you mentioned there, but there are also a number of, of other non-fiscal benefits and a lot of safeguards that they've brought in to really uh, foster and protect foreign investment. Uh, as well as local investment. So Scott, let's step back several steps and just have a look at this uh, Zarabani prospect that you've uh, you've outlined. Um, what can you tell me about the the technical steps, the looking, the seismic, the various geological studies and so forth that have gone into outlining what could be a sort of multi-trillion cubic feet gas type prospect? So when I first came across this project nearly 20 years ago, one of the things that, that, that really uh, attracted me to it was the fantastic data set uh, that Mobile had acquired when they explored uh, there in the, uh, in the early 90s. Uh, they, they'd explored the entire Zambezi uh, Rift Valley, uh, but it, the biggest prospect that was identified was in the Gaborabasa. And this was backed up by uh, geochemical data Aramag, Gravity, uh, and 2D seismic data. And although Mobile had shot uh, reconnaissance uh, seismic with grid spacing in the sort of 15 to 20 kilometer um, spacing, the Imzorobani prospect appeared on, on, on multiple lines because it's such an enormous feature. It's 200 square kilometers under closure. It's the largest undrilled seismically defined prospect in onshore Africa. And so looking at the quality of the seismic that was there in the, in the paper sections, uh, and advances in technology. We knew that uh, with the field tapes that were sitting there, Mobile built a, a climate controlled storage room to house all of the, the field tapes that they'd acquired from their, um, from their exploration campaign. We were confident. So you were able to, uh, you were able to reprocess that data? That's, that's right, right from the field tapes. And, and we've got a tremendous uplift in the quality of, of the, um, the data, uh, as you can see from, from some of the presentations that we've put out which has defined not only the primary target in, in the upper Angua, which is around 4.4 TCF and 250 million barrels of condensate, which to put that in, in context is about the size of the Pluto gas field um, in um, off Northwest Australia. That's operated by Woodside field. I know well, cause I worked on that as well. Uh, you know, so an absolutely enormous primary target, but we were also able to identify some of the prospectivity above and below that. So in the one single prospect now, uh, it's it's been independently estimated to contain 8.2 TCF and uh, nearly 300 million barrels of condensate. So, and that's in five got, five separate uh, target zones, Scott. That, that's right, with the bulk of it in our in our primary uh, target uh, over half. Yeah. So, um, Scott, the uh, we're talking about money here. Um, you have what an 80 percent interest in the permit. Who's the other 20 percent held by? We've got a local partner yep. uh, who who had the application uh, in for the license, and uh, we acquired eighty percent of of the company that that, that holds uh, the, the special grant four five seven one license. 
that that's run by a group of, of very well recognized uh, mining entrepreneurs in Zimbabwe. Uh, and uh, so very, very good local partner that we have there. Uh, that's added a tremendous amount of value on the ground. Fine. And um, so just the listeners to uh, Stockhead's Wildcatter will be interested to know just a tiny bit more about this geology because we've all heard about the fantastic oil fields that have been discovered uh, up in Uganda and to some extent in Kenya and Tanzania. These, as I understand it, are much younger rocks. And here we're looking at a Triassic age, sort of 160 million year old rocks in an older Rift Valley. Is that the way they sit? Yes, so it is in an older uh, Rift Valley, uh, and and uh, these rocks are older than than the discoveries that have been made in in Kenya and Uganda. But the way these Rift Valley systems work, you know, the rocks are different ages, but but um, structurally the way that that it's set up, uh, you know, looks very very similar uh, on these seismic sections. Very similar and, to the Jurat uh, to the, um, the what we see in the Cooper Aramanga Basin in Australia. Th- that's right, and, and and also the Perth Basin yeah. as well. Very very uh, similar age. So. And most of the Perth Basin uh, is Perma-Triassic. Yes. Uh, and, and then we've also got uh, a, a very, very good analogy in uh, in Madagascar, in the Morondava, which is where you find the Simarora and uh, Bellamaloga uh, heavy oil uh, fields, which are multi-billion barreled. Uh, and then also in, in Ethiopia, in uh, the Ogaden, where you've got the Caleb and Halala uh, gas fields, which are also, you know, in the five to seven uh, trillion cubic feet uh, mark in these in these older systems, so we're not chasing anything that's um, that's unproven elsewhere. In fact, there are very good analogs, as I mentioned. So, it, I guess the difference is is that Zimbabwe's been overlooked over this last twenty years since Mobile left because of because of the above ground conditions, not because of of, of the absolutely. And now that yeah. that's changed, uh, you know, it's been it's been a good time. Uh, you know, now for us to So, to Scott, enter. how deep will you be will you be targeting to drill, and what are we talking about in terms of above ground costs for for drilling a well in in that location in in Africa? So, I imagine the mobilisation demobilisation costs would be quite substantial. Well, actually, from a mobilisation and demobilisation uh, point of view, and infrastructure wise, we're we're actually relatively uh, well positioned. We've got a, a dual lane sealed blacktop road that goes. Uh, straight over the prospect, uh, just about. So we've got direct access to uh, the Byra Deepwater Port in Mozambique, and we, you know we can we can transport everything up the highway there. That's that's part of the Pan African Highway where all the bulk commodities come in and out uh, from Zambia, the Congo, Malawi, Botswana. So it's a very very and a railway line as well. That, that's right. So so mobilisation um, aspect is is much easier than some of those internal rift plays that you get, and even easier than some places in. Uh, in Australia, to be perfectly honest, um, so so that's not um, not too much of a uh, of a concern or cost. Uh, from um, uh, from a depth point of view of what we're chasing, our primary target uh, in the Upper Angwa Alternations member is around about uh, two thousand seven hundred meters to top structure, uh, and uh, we'll be drilling down to you know probably a minimum of three thousand two hundred meters. We expect that to cost um, around about ten million. Uh, US or so. Okay, so now you're very much on the uh, the company itself has about 450 million pieces of paper, uh, market cap of uh, what about 12 million and about one and a half million in the bank. So you're very much on the on the farm out uh, train at the moment, looking for partners or a partner or partners to come in and 
and fund the drilling. That's right. So we, we've we, uh, we've actually completed a capital raise uh, a few weeks ago. So we've got uh, just under three in the bank. Three. Okay. Uh, so so we so we're pretty well funded on on that front to get us through this this farm out process, which um, which is well advanced um, and and has and has been ongoing uh, for several months. And uh, so we're expecting um, to conclude that, bring in uh, a good partner, and then that'll see us um, carried through the forward activity. So from a from a risk reward point of view, um, you know you're looking at at a very very favourable uh, equation for Invictus, and uh, just looking at where this will be pre-drill. I think at a market cap today of twelve million, that that um, quite a bit of leverage to that. Exactly, chasing one of the biggest conventional targets uh, in the world. Yeah, and a lot of uh, you know wildcat listeners might say, "Oh, well, what's all this gas in the middle of Africa going to do?" But I think, um, from my experience of Southern Africa with the the Southern African power grid and uh, the shortages that that we're now seeing in South Africa itself, where they're having rolling blackouts because they haven't spent enough money on their largely coal-dominated power. Uh, generation systems, the opportunity here right on this grid to actually go gas to power or gas to uh, fertilisers or gas to any other industrial application seem to be quite uh, extraordinary. That's right, Peter. And and uh, I guess the primary reason uh, that Mobile left in the in the early 90s after they'd done this exploration work, they, they did, they did um, identify this big Imzorobani prospect and thought it was more gas prone than oil, oil prone. And at that stage, you'd had the Pandentamane onshore fields in Mozambique that had been discovered in the late 50s and early 60s by, by Gulf and changed hands multiple times through multiple companies. Still hadn't been developed by that stage. And that, that was around um, just over four TCF with those two fields combined. And so Mobile saw very little point in trying to discover more gas uh, in the region. If you fast forward now, 25 years to where we are today, the, the, the energy dynamic in the region has changed dramatically. Uh, as you pointed out, there's been a huge underinvestment in uh, in, in the energy uh, sector, there, particularly in, in, in electricity. Uh, and you've now had Pandentamane developed by Sassol, who built a 900-kilometer pipeline down into South Africa that services 320 customers uh, and uh, is a vital part of South Africa's gas mix and currently provides about 85% of their of their gas consumption. Uh, that, that that's starting to dwindle uh, and, and comes off plateau in 2023. Uh, and in addition, you've you've had uh, other uh, industries that now want to um, access gas for feedstock because it's a much cheaper uh, feedstock than you know coal. Or um, uh, a good example is is Sable Chemicals, who we've signed a gas uh, MOU with, and uh, they they manufacture fertilizer. It used to be done. With hydroelectric power from the Kariba um, power plant that you mentioned uh, right at the start, which was the largest um, electrolysis uh, plant in the region, that became too expensive because of the chronic underinvestment in, in electricity supply, and so they 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 shut down that process in um, in 2014, and they've been importing gas by rail from South Africa because there's a shortage of of feedstock in the rest of the region. Compressed natural gas or Yes, compressed net. Well, ammonia gas. Um, oh, okay. Yep. That that that, that comes in by, by rail. So they've been looking for a gas supply for uh, for a number of years, and see us as the nearest, um, you know, the, the nearest line of sight um, 
both from a distance perspective and, and from, a, from a time perspective and also from a cost perspective. And they've put their hand up for 70 million cubic feet a day if you can supply that for 20 years. So that would be a, a nice little underpinning for a project just on itself. That's right. So a, a total of around 500 billion cubic feet uh, over 20 years, which is you know, half the size of the, the Waitsi gas field, um, which, which makes a, a very nice little domestic gas project on its own. You know, even without any further sales, uh, it'll still be a very, very profitable development. So uh, what would you expect to be a, a price, a sales price at the uh, wellhead for gas in that location? Are we, are we talking sort of LNG comparisons or is it going to be some sort of discount to that? I think you, uh, you're looking probably at, at around about LNG net back yep. prices. So um, USAID, who've, who've got a, a division called Power Africa, released a study last year on the Southern African gas market and are predicting uh, landed gas prices in South Africa at around uh, the mid sort of seven US dollars um, per MCF uh, value. So, so, so very, very healthy, you know, comparable to, to East Coast gas prices. And that's because there's such a, a shortage of gas uh, in the region and, and the same study uh, has identified that there's going to be a, a shortfall, a gas supply shortfall in South Africa of between 1.1 to 2 billion cubic feet per day, uh, which in comparison to the east coast of Australia, that sits at around 0.1 to 0.2 uh, BCF per day. So it's, um, it is, uh, you know, gas is a, a, as a, once was considered, you know, particularly in a landlocked country like, like Zimbabwe, was considered stranded. Whereas now you've got a lot of options to monetize uh, gas, both you know, both from a pipeline point of view, but then also um, what I forgot to mention earlier was gas to power, uh, which you can now monetize through the Southern Africa has power there, Has there been and anyone so that, sort of sniffing around, talking to you about, you know, look, if you find some gas here, we'd be delighted to to take it and build a power station nearby, or is that too early? No, there, there have been um, there has been a lot of interest from multiple parties uh, in doing that, and and you know to solve the energy crisis in in the region, it's not just going to take our project; it's going to take a number of them because because the shortage is so acute, and gas is a very very elegant solution because uh, the power plants are cheaper to build and they're quicker to build, and they're scalable, whereas coal it takes um, anywhere between four to eight years, uh, nuclear, not a very uh, popular option at the moment. And uh, there, there is already a lot of renewable energy in the grid, in, in South Africa excluded, uh, in, in Southern Africa. And uh, most of it's hydro, and that's facing severe challenges at the moment because of the drought uh, that's going on. So, so companies are looking for reliable uh, and affordable baseload power and the horizons to build new coal-fired power stations are, are too long to solve their challenges uh, and, and too uncertain. Uh, you know, a lot of funding uh, coal-fired power stations is getting tricky nowadays, whereas gas is, a, is this perfect uh, intermediate bridge that you have between, you know, eventually renewables may get there, but at the moment there is a, a huge proportion of renewables already in the grid in Southern Africa, and quite frankly, it's not working. And uh, some of your, uh, go back to your old stomping grounds in Botswana, there's a couple of your peers, uh, Strata X and Tolu, who are looking to develop uh, coal seam gases there. But as you say, it's a fairly long, uh, you know, these are 
low productive holes and you have to drill hundreds of wells and so forth. That's right. Con- conventional gas, um, and, and we're, we're chasing conventional gas. Uh, we've got very, very good uh, reservoir properties in our, in our primary uh, target in the Upper Angua, which are going to flow at um, at very, very high rates. And it just makes your, your unit development cost much, much lower, much quicker uh, and, and much simpler developments. And of course, um, you have to drill a hole and you have to find some gas. And I, I see from looking at your presentations and the seismic that there are nice uh, AVO anomalisms shown on that uh, seismic, which is a typical sort of indicator for gas in place. That's right. And, and it's been one of the benefits that we've had of, of reprocessing this, this data set from mobile. Um, you know, you, you, you take the seismic data set that, that uh, mobile acquired and the raw data is around about 16 gigabytes worth uh, of, of 2D data. If you can imagine the limited computing power to process that 25 years ago, uh, compared to what we can do nowadays, um, you can see the results from, uh, from our presentation where we showed a couple of comparison slides. And one of the, you know, one of the, um, uh, the great revelations from this process has been uh, these AVO anomalies, uh, as you say, which are, which are often hydrocarbon indicators. And the fact that they conform to structure, uh, they shut off uh, down dip, um, is very, very encouraging. And that puts to rest a lot of the uncertainty that you have with some of those petroleum system elements, uh, particularly in an undrilled basin, where you're not quite sure if all of them work together, particularly on the timing front. Uh, but having these indicators there uh, is generally a good sign because it means that, that all of those elements of source, seal, reservoir, uh, trap, are all working together because um, you know they often only, these, these anomalies only show up um, you know often when you've got hydrocarbons present within. Yeah, and it's a, it's a sort of thing which would attract a major. I mean, I guess uh, you'd be looking at a partner from Asia somewhere to the Indian or Chinese or you know Petronas or someone like that from Malaysia. Are they the sort of people who'd be looking around at this sort of project? Look, not not only those companies, but there are a lot of very very good uh, regional independents. Uh, as well as the majors. Uh, I think uh, people uh, underestimate how many active players there are in Africa. It's, you know, it's sort of treated as, as one, yeah. one, one big country by, by a lot of people, but um, there are multiple players uh, in the region who'd, who'd also be very, very good partners. Even downstream players who decided to go upstream to, to get their hands on some raw materials. That's right, and, and, and we've seen that uh, in Australia. From, from that point of view where, um, you know, particularly for something large that you can capture for a very modest cost. Uh, and, and that's one of the great, thing about, uh, great things about our project is that it is a massive reward for such a relatively uh, small entry cost that it does attract a wide uh, variety of interested parties. And so for downstream players trying to secure feedstock, it's far more efficient if you're going to buy, um, you know, several hundred million dollars worth of gas or billions of dollars worth of gas, then... Um, you know, you, it, it, it makes a far more sense from a, from a risk reward point of view to, um, you know, to, to have some skin uh, in the upstream side of the game. Yeah. So um, I guess it all comes down to timing. I mean, these partners are notoriously slow. The, the, the bigger the company, the, the longer the time frame to make a decision. Are you hopeful of getting something done in the first quarter of next year or do you think by the middle of next year? Or have you got any idea of, you know, when the, the sort of all the, the money might fall into the bank and we can begin to look forward to some drilling. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to provide a preemption on, on, on when we're going to 
uh, close it, but we are working uh, as hard and as fast as possible to, to, to close it early. A wise choice of words, Scott. Yes. Well, look, that's fantastic. Thank you for running us through uh, your story. I'm sure the Wildcatter uh, listeners from Stockhead will be watching very closely the IVZ code as we run through into 2020. And, uh, you know, you're well funded to run through this uh, farm out process. And, uh, you know, we'll be watching very closely. And thank you very, very much for coming in and talking to us today. My pleasure, Peter. Thank you for having me.